This is the baby. She's Look getting at looking at screens. Say bonjour. Hi. Hello. Yeah, you're seeing other people. Hi. Wow, wow, wow. Oh, no, she saw the phone. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. <laughs> nice to meet you. Uh, maybe you should put her shows on. These are the kinds of moments where you put the TV on. What you just heard was me speaking to a new mom about her 13-month-old daughter's use of screens. We're going to talk about all kinds of tech-related issues over the next few episodes, looking at everything from the psychological impacts of social media to the impacts of data collection. But there is this bigger question looming, which is how are screens themselves affecting brain development in young kids? As a parent, this is something I've thought a lot about. Am I actually hurting my child when I give him that tablet? Studies are showing that even before the pandemic, screen time use was going way up for kids. So today we're going to dive into the science here and try and figure this out. To put it bluntly, are tablets breaking our kids' brains? I'm Taylor Owen, an academic who studies technology and the parent of an eight-year-old who loves his iPad. I'm Nicole Edwards, a journalist and former child who is still very attached to her tablet. This is Screen Time. There are huge questions playing out right now over the place of technology in our lives. Facebook was scheming to bring even younger users into their field. You're basically giving out your personal ID to games so they can make money for it. There are some people that I would like to block in real life. We could work together, but I will add that there are tensions because in the app market, their job is to sell, sell, sell. There's a lot that like, I just don't understand. This is their platform, this is their life. Where's the limit? Every parent is struggling with these questions. Governments around the world are trying to keep up, and the scale and pace of change is only increasing. In this show, we'll talk to parents and kids about how they navigate the digital world. And to the researchers and policymakers who can help us understand the consequences. So Taylor, I'm going to play for you a bit of a conversation I had with a parent I spoke to. Great. So my name is Isabel. I have a 13-month-old daughter who's named Dahlia. And I'm a single mom and full-time student. Tell me more about your daughter. What's she like? She is recently developing an attitude, uh, but she's a very happy baby. She rarely cries. She's good with her sleeping, with her eating. She's just overall a really good baby. But she does love her, her, you know, her Mickey Mouse and things like that. When did you first introduce her to screens? Oh, she was about a few weeks old, barely a few weeks old. We actually would put her in her baby swing, and we would put a pink fong on, which is like, you know, the whole baby shark. And we would put that on while we had supper so that we could all have supper at the same time and not have a crying baby. And Isabel knows what the guidelines are when it comes to young kids and screens. So it's zero screen time until she's two. That's what her doctor recommends. And it's what I'm assuming most doctors recommend. 
but basically all the parents I know have all, you know, given their kids screen time to a certain extent. So I'm not listening to my doctor's recommendations in this. <laughs> <laughs> and why haven't you followed that advice? I mean, I look at all the other families and how much, you know, everybody has screen time. And I had screen time when I was younger. So at the end of the day, I don't know how big of an impact it's having since I turned out great. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's the convenience, the convenience of having uh, the TV going and, you know, giving mommy a, a moment to make supper without having a baby in her arms or, you know, uh, crying. There's so much going on there that's just fascinating and that I, I sort of deeply empathize with. We're all, I mean, at the base, parents are just sort of making this up as they go along. But there's some really important things I think come out of just even that initial conversation that how we engage as parents with expert advice and scientific advice. Because these technologies are embedded in our lives. They're not these sort of extraneous things. They're in this case, real crutches and help us parent and, and fill these sort of needs that I think all parents face. Absolutely. And that leads us to Isabel's question. Questions regarding screen time. I was wondering the studies they have regarding screen time. How recent are there? Are there any ongoing studies regarding which shows are more beneficial to children or not? Yeah, I mean, look, this question is obviously not new. When parents put kids in front of TVs, they were also worried about this. And it took years and years of research to understand what the positive and negative effects were of, of television on our social development, on our brain development. And one of the key sort of insights, I think, that comes out of a lot of that earlier work on television is that all TV isn't the same. We know that educational TV, like things like Sesame Street, is very different than something that's just pure entertainment for kids. Mm-hmm. The question now is, is there something different? Like, is this new technology a continuum of these older technologies, of just sort of more passive screen time of television? Right. Or is having an iPad in front of you as a child different? And I think most parents who tried to sort of take away an iPad from a kid will recognize that it is. And that's what I personally really want to learn more about. I'm not a parent, so I wanted to get a sense of how older kids, slightly older than Dahlia, have been interacting with tablets. What they think about them, how they use them, how they react to them. So our producer Kevin was kind enough to let me borrow his son Otis. Otis is four. He's had a tablet since he was about three, and he absolutely loves it. Well, it's my favorite thing that I play with. What's more fun, your tablet or mom and daddy? My tablet. <laughs> you talk to me about games he <laughs> plays. It's a game where you make cookies with Cookie Monster and Elmo. Read to me books, how he uses it for podcasts. Mr. Charlton's audio story. One thing that surprised me was how much of his day it takes up. I asked him when he uses it. Sometimes before dinner, sometimes before lunch, sometimes in between. And? And, and when I brush my teeth. When you brush your teeth? 
Yeah, yeah, because there's videos I can watch while I brush my teeth on on YouTube because YouTube is on. Does this surprise you? I you can hear in the my... slightest. <laughs> N- nice, nice parenting move, Kevin, who's listening in to this conversation. <laughs> no, I, I mean, and this is where I think like the honesty needs to come in here, right? I mean, look, we have days where our son spends hours and hours on his iPad, right? And it's a real crutch we use and one I often feel guilty about and both of us feel guilty about and really sort of struggle with to what degree we should allow him to use this thing that's like really deeply immersive for him. And as he gets older, he's getting access to more and more apps and games and communities online, which which we're going to talk a lot about, I think, in the show. There's so many questions there that uh, are really open ones. When you say these windows of consuming it, and yes, I think every parent will say they have these rules of half an hour here, half an hour then. And one, most of that isn't followed, particularly coming out of the pandemic. Right. But two, I bet that even when they're not on it, (laughs) they are thinking about it. I know that's the case with my son. Like, his iPad is on his mind a lot. And when he's not on it, he's, like, waiting until he will be on it. He's, like, thinking about what he's going to do when he's going to be on it. Yeah. And I think we have to recognize that, right? We've enabled that. And I, I want to know what it's, what's good and bad about it as a parent. Let's get some answers. Since we last spoke, I've done some reading and talked to a couple of experts to help us better understand this issue and to get some advice for parents. So let's start with the basics. What's behind that recommendation that Isabel is hearing from a pediatrician? You mean that kids under two shouldn't watch screens? Exactly. Like, where does that rule come from? The human brain is essentially embryonic when we're born, in the sense that Unlike other animals, we have virtually no circuits dedicated to survival. I spoke to Dr. Michael Rich, who's an associate professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. And he's also the director of the Digital Wellness Lab at Boston Children's Hospital, which works with tech companies as well as the medical community and educators on the effects of technology on kids. He also calls himself a mediatrician. <laughs> mediatrician. But he explained what's going on in a human brain in those early years. So during the first two years or three years of life, we are not building new neurons so much as we are building synaptic connections. And we are building the complexity of the brain, both in terms of those neurons that are connecting with each other, but also how they relate physically, anatomically to each other as the brain gets more folds and connections of larger parts as well. So that being said, the other thing that is going on is that we are actively pruning away less useful connections. And so I think that what we're seeing is a very rapid development during those first two years or so of life in which the brain actually triples in volume. And we are aware that those stimuli that are happening are actively shaping that process. Right. So if we're looking at a screen, we may be building different connections or not building certain connections that we otherwise would be. Is that what he's saying? Yeah. And and this phenomenon is called plasticity. 
It turns out our brains actually build and rewire themselves based on their input. So in the early years, when the brain is forming, kids are learning a ton from that interaction with other people. How to read faces and emotions, their language development, eye contact, all these basic, really crucial human things. And in that sense, Michael doesn't think the distinction between a kid watching a TV or using a tablet is really that important in those early years. I don't think it's so much the difference between an iPad and a television as it is between an iPad or television and the physical world. And while iPads say, well, we can give them finger painting in millions of colors, it is really actually a fairly attenuated or weak version of what finger painting is, in the sense that, you know, you don't get any of the tactile, you don't get the smell, you don't get the wonderful response when you smear that paint on your little brother. And, you know, we have a bad habit, for example, of saying, uh, let's turn on the television or give them the iPad so I can get dinner on the table. When would it be more interesting to the child? Would it be more brain building for that matter? If we were to put the child on the floor with a bowl, a wooden spoon and some flour and see what happens, right? Yes, you would have much more of a mess, but the child would be more integrated into the process of preparing food. What a great bit of information. And it's safe to say there's pretty much a consensus here in the industry as well. The WHO, the Canadian Pediatric Society, and the American Academy of Pediatrics, they all recommend not to put your infant in front of a screen. The consensus seems to be under two should be very limited screen time. What about older kids like Otis? The science isn't fully fleshed out here, but we are starting to get some answers. It's really hard to study infants, but it's a little less hard to study preschoolers. I spoke to someone who does that. He conducts studies on how looking at screens affects the structural integrity of the young brain, such as its ability to form connections and build memories. There's a term in neuroscience called neurons that fire together, wire together. And that's this is John Hutton. He's a pediatrician and a clinical researcher at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital. He and his fellow researchers actually use an MRI to try and measure, in a physical sense, the changes that screens are having on a child's brain, looking at preschool-age children in particular. How do you go about that? Well, he's done some studies where kids are having their brain scanned as they're taking in different types of media. For example, audio, a picture book, and an animation of the same story. Actually, a Canadian author, Robert Munch. And looking for differences in how the brain reacts. And he's done other studies where they take a picture of the brain and then ask families to answer questions about their use of technology. In these ones, they're looking for connections between the amount and type of screen time that parents report and the pictures of the brain and how it's functioning. We published the first study in the preschool age range, three to five-year-olds, using a modality called DTI, which specifically looks at the wiring of the brain, um, sort of the connections. Um, it's called white matter between parts of the brain and sort of how they talk to each other. And so we did that kind of scanning, but then we asked parents questions about their child's digital media use using a more of a composite measure 
called the screen queue that includes things like access to screens as a screen in the bedroom, how often the child uses screens, or whether they watch with a parent, what kind of content they use. And kids with higher scores on that measure had significant differences in the white matter connections of the wiring in their brains, um, really all over the place. But we also specifically looked at areas involved with language and literacy and found that kids with higher use had lower measures of the, what we call integrity, sort of the structural maturity of, of these white matter connections in their brain. So, and it was one snapshot in time. So we're not sure when did that get started? Did it start when they were infants? Did it start recently? And, but it was definitely uh, really the first evidence that there are really some pretty fundamental differences in how the, how the brain's maturing related to more or less screen use. This same study found these same kids that had lower measures of white matter maturity or um, had also lower scores on tests of language, um, executive function, and early reading. And so it seems like those differences in the brain relate to differences in cognitive abilities. Do you have any hypothesis why screens are doing that? The thinking is that there's probably two main categories of of impacts of screens on whether it's cognitive abilities, relationships, or the brain, and they're direct effects, which can be things that cause differences directly from whatever the child's watching, and that's most classically related to things like violent content or age-inappropriate content, where whatever they're watching or doing stimulates their brain differently than other sort of more age-appropriate stimuli would, so that would be more of a direct effect. But probably more often than that is, is what we call indirect effects, which are something gets displaced. You know, some aspect of what children have or humans have evolved to require when they're little to develop optimally is displaced by screen use. I think when people think about the effect of screen on a brain, they're thinking it's literally the device that is affecting yeah, the brain. like it's radioactive. And, or yeah, like or like there's something about it that's different than other technologies and it's actually having a negative effect. But it's more likely to be the displacement of other activities that is doing it? I think so. I think, I mean, I've heard it described really well as sort of the explosion of, of screen use in the past 20 years or so is uh, they compared it to a huge uncontrolled experiment. You know, humans have evolved over millennia in terms of interactions with one another in the world and changed them really fundamentally in a short period of time where how kids grow up now is much more anchored to the virtual world, to you know, processing this kind of thing on a screen instead of in the real life. And what the long-term implications of that are probably really variable. I mean, I think some kids will probably develop just fine. Some will really struggle, and a lot will kind of be in the middle, which is another really important issue with how screen use affects the brain and skills is there probably is a lot of variability in kids' predispositions to certain types of pathology, like some kids may have a harder time being addicted to screen use and reinforcing more of these addictive pathways. Some may be more anxious by watching certain types of media. So that, that gets back to the idea that when kids are little, it sort of behooves us to be as careful as we can and really to understand the child and you know what their proclivities are in terms of, you know, can they self-regulate their screen use? Do they have enough other activities that are helping to keep things pretty balanced? And you know, what's their situation like? The way John is talking about all of this, it sounds like there are still some open questions. There absolutely are. This is all pretty new science, so there aren't decades of studies to back it up. And there are some researchers like John seeing a relationship between screen time and brain development, 
But there are others who say that there's just not enough evidence yet to make definitive statements. And in fact, even in John's study, when you account for income level, the effect becomes less clear. John was really upfront about the need for more data here. Yeah, we're, we're planning longitudinal studies where, like, for example, start in infancy and follow through, you know, kindergarten, and then we can actually get repeat scans on the same kids and get a sense if things really are more causal. Right now, the, the, the brain evidence is more what we call associational, where we know that this is associated with, like, higher use associated with differences in measures of brain development, but we don't know if that was caused or, you know, which way the cause goes. You know, were there differences in the brain before the child used more screens or vice versa? There's definitely still a lot of work to be done, and um, research takes a long time, and it's you know it's slow to fund it, slow to do it, slow to publish it. Meanwhile, the you know technology keeps going, so you know we'll just do the best we can to keep teasing these questions apart. Ah, so the old correlation doesn't equal causality line. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but given what he's seeing and some of the things people are finding in other fields, like increased mental health issues disruption of sleep, and even vision problems, he urges real caution here. It's interesting. It's sort of like the technology took off, and now we're trying to play catch up to figure out... What it's doing. Is, you know, right. is it, is it, um, we didn't really have to do the studies first to establish, yes, this is totally safe. And I don't mean to be a total naysayer about technology for children. I mean, I want the evidence to come out too, but I just feel like caution is probably the, the best idea. And for parents to really watch their child and just get a sense, does this seem like that they're a little too attached to their devices where some addictive behaviors may take hold? Does it seem to make them nervous when they go on the social media and they get FOMO and all that? I don't know, just, just really tuning into, does your child seem like they're gonna be vulnerable for some of the negatives or do you think they can you know, get more out of it? Are you satisfied with the answer there? Yes, mostly. I mean, I really learned a lot from these conversations. I think we got as clear a picture as we can, given what's known at the moment. But that final point of his does bring us to an interesting point, that one way or another, we're just not going back to the 1970s and the way we consumed media then. Screens and social media are in many ways here to stay. So we're kind of in the middle of this large-scale social experiment that scientists are trying to understand. Right. Kids aren't going to just stop using tablets and suddenly go offline. Exactly. And actually, other researchers have found that there can, of course, be some positive effects of screen time as well, like the social interaction they can afford, if you get the right amount. So that creates this practical question for parents of how to emphasize the positive effects of screen time and minimize the potential harms. Mm -hmm. In other words, how to deal with reality. <laughs> yeah, that's one way of putting it. One person I really wanted to speak to about this was Dr. Catherine Hirsch-Pasek, a professor of psychology at Temple University and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Her research examines the development of early language and literacy, as well as the role of play in learning. And she has some really great ideas about how to evaluate the quality of screen time for young kids. She pointed out an interesting way to think about the difference between the media environment I grew up in versus the one my son is now growing up in. The world we grew up in was curated. Today, it's not. The world that we grew up in had a lot of times for a lot of programs. Today, it's on demand. The world 
we grew up in had a place where a TV was situated. The world today has mobile phones where nothing is situated in a place. It is everywhere and available at all times. Those three features make the world that we grew up in fundamentally and quintessentially different than the world that our children are growing up in. So she thinks, for one thing, the parents need better tools to evaluate the quality of what they're getting. Because right now, it's kind of the Wild West in the app store. Just like with TV, there's mindless junk, and then there's some stuff that's designed to be stimulating or educational. But TV actually has rules around children's programming and what's allowed to be called educational. Those rules don't exist in the app store. So Catherine has designed her own criteria to help parents make informed decisions around what kind of content their children are accessing. And a quick aside here. Since we've started talking about evaluating educational content, I should mention that we're making this podcast for TVO. TVO has been involved in distance learning since 1970 and supports digital education through its website, apps, children's programming, and YouTube channels. Here's Catherine again. Well, I would say, you know, the first rule is if it says that it's going to have some sort of brain development for your child, drop it immediately. Okay, just, okay, let's just push that out. (laughs) Okay. Because everything that you do in the world will indeed have some impact on your brain. That's how human beings think and, you know, walk along the beach. That's affecting your brain. She has developed four pillars to help evaluate screen time quality. You can think of them as a checklist of things to look out for when you're evaluating the quality of an app. Okay, take us through them. The first pillar is, is it active or passive? If you're just doing this as a babysitting event, that's fine. Find something you like that you don't think is offensive. It'll babysit. Cool. You know, so I call Candy Crush and stuff like that babysitting. For the zero to three crowd, by the way, almost all of it is babysitting. Pillar two, is it engaging? In the sense that it keeps your attention and doesn't distract you. So let me give you an example of distraction. You're reading a book about Clifford, okay? And by gosh, you find right after page three, it says C for Clifford. Can you find other things that have a C? Cans. Oh, and carrots. Well, this has nothing to do with the story of Clifford. (laughs) So taking you off task to take you somewhere else in the stratosphere is not a help. And that would be a no. Pillar three, is it meaningful to that child? Is it something they would recognize from their life and from their lived experience? Hmm. What does that mean exactly? She gave the example that if you're in Philadelphia, where she is, kids won't have a connection to things like deserts or armadillos. (laughs) A meaningful experience for them might be a bike ride or baking. So you should look for stuff that incorporates familiar imagery. Got it. The final pillar is social interaction. Does it prompt social engagement? either from another adult or from another child. That one seems pretty self-explanatory. It is, and it comes up a lot. So active, engaging, meaningful, and socially interactive. 
Those are the things she says parents should be keeping an eye out for. She and a team actually did a study recently on how many apps marked as educational meet these criteria, and they found that most don't. Many, many, many of the hundreds of thousands of available apps don't cut it when we put them against the pillars. They looked at the most popular apps in that category. And when we compared it, believe it or not, maybe you will believe this, 60% of the apps failed to meet the criteria. That sounds pretty bleak. What about the 40% that do meet her criteria? She mentioned a few of the ones that she recommends. There are great entertainment apps. When, among my favorite are the Tokoboka series, and there are great educational apps. So I think Daniel the Tiger and PBS does a beautiful job. Sesame does a beautiful job. Common Sense can help you navigate a little bit on what's really good and what isn't. She's referring to Common Sense Media, which is a website that provides age-based reviews for kids for things like books and TV shows. And apps. In the end, though, she says there's not a right or wrong approach for parents. These are personal decisions, and she just wants people to be better informed. We take the responsibility, yeah, of feeding our kid and of saying, nope, chocolate cake is not to be the main course. So same difference. What do you want? Is there time for just reading? Is there time for talking? Please understand, I am not anti-app. I am not anti-digital, but I am anti-junk food. And the equivalent of junk food or junk app, if you will, is not something I think we should be exposing our kids to. So these pillars seem like a useful tool to help parents make decisions, but it also sounds like a lot of work to be vetting and grading each app. Do you do that now for your son? I really do try to. My son has to ask before he downloads any app, and I've often found it really hard to know what to allow him to download versus not. Mm -hmm. But these criteria have actually helped me a bit, just to have some broad sense of whether these things are in any way educational or not. Right. And I did ask Catherine about this. I mean, I find your criteria really helpful as almost a, a thought process I can go through when evaluating whether to download an app or allow usage or not. But I'm wondering if this is something we can put all onto parents. Could the app store be doing their educational category via your criteria, for example? It would be great if they would, but, you know, it's more work for them. Hmm. What you're asking for here, which I do think we should bring back into the world, is that we really need to have more gatekeepers for our kids. And I think in the media world in particular, there's a lot of stuff that gets spewed out there and that our children are allowed to partake. And we can't have control of all of it, though we do our best. And the app companies should be more responsible on where they use or don't use the word educational. And I honestly think there are slews, and I mean this, of scientists who would jump on board to work with the app creators and designers to help them see what cuts the criteria of how human brains really learn. We could work together, but I will add that there are tensions because in the app market, their job is to sell, sell, sell. That means bringing something to market quickly. In the science, we don't work so quickly. We kind of know what the nutrition is in the science. 
Right now, what's happening is it's as if parents are being fed a lot of dessert and a few good things are being stuck in the dessert, you know, like pea cake, <laughs> you know, or broccoli whipped cream or something like that. But for the most part, we're not getting that. We're getting the rush to market, put the word educational on it, boom, end of story. And I think that's kind of what has to change in the marketplace. Not regulation with a heavy R, but kind of like we did for the movie industry, you know? And if we could get our acts together in the app area where they could do this, where they're hiring and hiring and they have data analysts, parents would least know that their kids weren't eating junk food. So what do parents do in the meantime? Well, Dr. Michael Rich, who we spoke to earlier in the episode, had some advice. Let's remember Sesame Street was developed for decades before there were governmental regulations on what could be done on television. The Children's Television Act didn't happen until the 90s. Sesame Street started in 1969. So I don't think we should rely on or wait for the government to create a safer space. I think we do have to inform and empower all of us, parents included, with the information necessary to do their job the best they can. I think that we have had kind of a resistance to enter into the digital space as parents. We don't understand it. The kid is so much better at it than I am. I, and I think we've got to be more proactive in parenting in the space. That being said, parents don't need to learn a whole lot of new stuff. They just need to bring their parenting skills into a new environment. He says that it also comes down to embracing that this is a learning experience, that we're all doing things imperfectly, and that you should really just try to connect with your kids. We're approaching an ideal. We will never reach it, and we have to accept that. The reality is these kids actually understand it and more, are more facile with the technology than their parents in most cases. That shouldn't be a sign to the parents to give up, you know, and say, they're way ahead of us, I can't do anything here. But more should be apparent that they can be the student as well as the teacher here, that they should use these media with their kids. And so instead of being upset about the kid playing a first-person shooter, actually sit down with them and do the first-person shooter with them. They're coming from a very different place with their kids than if they're sort of wagging their figure and saying, I hate that, turn it off. And so one of the things that I say to parents is instead of seeking the killer app, we should be developing our killer bees. Those are three. One is be balanced in our screen and non-screen use. So instead of focusing on how much screen time, let's focus on the other things we can be doing and making sure that we are giving that rich and diverse menu of experience to our kids. The second is be mindful. Be mindful of our use of screens. Use them as tools, use them effectively, and turn them off when they are not the best tool for the job. And perhaps most importantly, be present. Don't let our use of screens absent us from that relationship. Don't let us staring at our smartphone 
not hear our child's needs or not hear a conversation or uh, I wonder if moment. So I think that if we can be balanced, be mindful and be present and stay on that all the time, we will be doing better by our children. Coming back to Isabel's question, which was about whether there are recent studies on this, the answer is yes. And because of concerns from parents like her, there are actually a lot of ongoing studies about how kids' brains are affected by tech use. But Taylor, do you think we can definitively answer the question of whether screens are breaking kids' brains? Uh, No, um, certainly not conclusively. And Look, I think there are some studies that correlate the amount of screen time with things like white matter deterioration. Um, but it, it, it really is unclear what exactly is causing this. There's ambiguity about whether it could be a predisposition for this kind of connection, something like deferred effects, so that actually it's that we're not reading when we're spending time on an iPad, for example. Or they could literally be connected. It could be that, that time in front of an iPad is leading to this white matter deterioration. But the reality is we just don't know yet. But the one thing that there is very clear consensus on is that very minimal screen time under the age of two is recommended by pretty much everybody who studies this. Next week, we'll take a look at an issue that happened last fall. A whistleblower at Facebook leaked internal research suggesting that Instagram causes mental health problems in teens. Is there more to this story, or has Facebook been hiding a dangerous secret? See you then. Thanks for listening to this episode of Screen Time from TVO, Antica Productions, and the Center for Media, Technology, and Democracy at McGill University. I produce this show along with our senior producer, Kevin Sexton. Production assistance by Emily Morantz. Research assistance by Sonia Solomon, Cody Hauka, and Helen Hayes. Mixing and sound design by Phil Wilson and Mitchell Stewart. Our executive producer is Laura Regeer. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica. Katie O'Connor is the senior producer of podcasts at TVO. Lori Few is the executive producer for digital at TVO. If you like this show, tell a friend. What would you do if you lost your tablet? I would I would just I would just defeat that robber because I'm actually a superhero and I'm actually a cat. No. It's true.